0: scripture lesson today comes from um, James, Jesus' little brother. Uh, Let's share in God's good word together. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love my country. I love my country. I'm an Eagle Scout. I've received citizenship awards and recognition from the daughters of the American Revolution. I'm, I'm a Boy Scout. I'm patriotic. But friends, when I die... I won't wake up to the face of the President of the United States in Washington, D.C., and neither will you. I will wake up to the face of my Savior Jesus, King over all kings, Lord over all lords, who is over every nation for all time and has no term limit. That's my King. So let me be really clear the issue is not patriotism, it's priority. One nation under God, indivisible, right? We might say it with me, one nation under God, indivisible, right? So it's God first, nation second, and by God's grace, a more perfect union. That's what we're working towards, a more perfect union. Uh, my name is Mark Foster, founding senior pastor here at Acts 2. And for all of you online, we're glad that you're with us. And I hope that those of us here in the first service and those online Uh, Go vote on Tuesday. It's important. It's important. But vote wisely as God instructs, not as you receive in the mail or here on TV, (laughs) especially that. So here it is as a way of introduction. We are one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We're going to talk more about this next week. But friends, it's only indivisible if we do have liberty and justice for all. That's how that works. It's all together, right? It's not one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for some. And this is what holds us together. So last week we talked about the number one enemy of the church. Anybody remember what it is? Division. Absolutely. I would also say the number one enemy of the nation is division. The number one enemy of the church and nation is, say it with me, division. Division. Now you may have heard this next line in political stump speeches or in history class. But did you know that these are the very words of Jesus? In the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be, what? Ruined. We need to pay attention to that. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Right? And Jesus was very clear about this. The number one most important thing to Jesus was unity. Now, some of my... Uh, Friends from other traditions they are like, well, what about salvation? Friends, unity is a part of salvation. Salvation is a part of unity. If God came to save the world and not just some, then you have to have unity or not everybody's in. Does it make sense? That salvation and unity, that's all wrapped up together. So the most important thing to Jesus is not only your salvation, but the salvation of all creation, of all the world, Mark 16. Right? So... Michael Andrus, our Director of Discipleship, if you haven't yet downloaded our app and read the Reading and Reflections each day, they're there for you Monday through Friday. I start uh, every morning with those, and Michael writes uh, four out of five of those now. Dr. Grell writes one of them, and they are great. This week, this line really struck me. Uh, Michael wrote, if we are for Christ above all else, we are then also for everybody else. Amen. Now, let's read that together. If we are for Christ above all else, we are then also for everybody else. That's right. That's right. And, and we need to just own it, friends. We are a politically diverse church. Did you know that we have Democrats in here? Did you know that we have some Republicans in here? Do you know that we have some Libertarians in here? I know what you're thinking. What's a Libertarian? We have <laughs> Independents in here, Right? Yes, it's true. Disagreement is unavoidable. It is. But division is a choice. Say that with me. Division is a choice. It is. It just is. It's a choice. Ed Stetzer, a Baptist of all things, right? I'm going to quote a Baptist from a Methodist pulpit. Um, he's a great researcher. He's really been helpful to me as I was planting this church and, and guiding others. He says this, and it really, puts, it really puts a point on it. He says, you can't wage war on people and reach them at the same time. Right? You can't wage war on people and expect them to come to know the love of Jesus. It doesn't work. So when we choose division, we are choosing not to learn. Think about that. When we choose division, we're intentionally staying stupid. Really. We are choosing not to learn and to do what we've always done. So it works in two ways, right? You come together, you believe what you believe, you do what you do, and you're not going to change. So either one, you leave, learn nothing, and do the same thing only somewhere else. Or, even worse, you stay, kick everybody else out, and you still learn nothing. You just simply do what you've always done and hold on to that. Does this make sense to you? If you're not gaining new information, new insight, then you're not learning. And that is not a, a recipe for goodness. That's a recipe for disaster. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, again, to put a point on it, during World War II, uh, one of our uh, latest, most well-known martyrs of our faith, he says this, uh, he's writing this in Germany. He says, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace of which others are just as entitled to as we are. That's worth holding on to. Terrible things happen when we demonize others. The world falls apart. And so you and I, Jesus followers, we have a specific responsibility to live differently from the rest of the world. Unlike anybody else. We love when others hate. We listen when others shout. And and this has been a problem in the church and outside of the church since the beginning of the church and really the beginning of time. Paul writes to the early church in Corinth. He says, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Notice the language. It's not, I I appeal to you, knuckleheads. No, he's like, brothers, sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, unity and unity, that all of you be in what? Agreement. And that there be what? No divisions among you, but that you might be what? United. You, You kind of see a theme here? Right? In the same mind and the same purpose. So friends, our faith is political but not partisan. Right? To say Jesus is Lord is to make a political statement. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. But it's never partisan. And, and it's not whether it's this or that party in England, this or that party in the United States, this or, this or that party in France or Italy or anywhere else. It's political, not partisan. And you can change the names of the parties. But this issue is the same. Every country, all time. Andy Stanley puts it like this. When it is more important to us to have our way than follow Jesus, then we have lost our way and our credibility. Our credibility. Now, we can bemoan all we want, those young people today that aren't being a part of the church. Or we could look at ourselves and say, why would they want to be? With the way folks are acting. They look at that. They see God's name being thrown around by so called Christian groups, and and they're like, Really? Jesus was that mean? That nasty? That terrible? Jesus said terrible things about people all the time? No. But we allow it. Right? We, We we need to have voices that say, No, 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 that's not who God is. Our God loves everyone. God so loved the what? World. Yeah, we know this. But do we live this? That's the question. It's one thing to say God so loved the world, it's a whole other thing to live it. So in first century Rome, for example, to say Jesus is Lord is also to say Caesar is not. And that'd get you killed. It was a capital crime. Because in the Roman Empire, you had to say Caesar is king. Lord and king are basically the same word. There's some nuance, but that's basically it. And so here in America, to say Jesus is Lord is also to say my party's not. My ideology is not. And even my country is not. And when we take that seriously, that does change the world for good. And here's the harder part. We can know this, and it's hard for me too, friends. It is. Because there are times when people I've aligned myself with say some stupid things. And my first inclination is just to let it go and hope nobody notices. When what I'm called to is to say, uh, that's not what Christians believe. That's just that's not what we believe. That's not what we're taught. That's not what the scriptures say. And that's hard because I'm not a confrontational person. And you're like, you're preaching on politics. Come on. But, <laughs> but you make, I mean, that's, that's not, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? It is. But Jesus is our Lord. Jesus alone. Andy Stanley puts it this way He says, believe it or not, political disagreement is usually fueled by divergent life experiences. Isn't that true? Somebody thinks about government one way because they grew up in rural western Oklahoma uh, with wheat harvest and oil, or they lived through the 80s and they know what that was like, and they know the needs. And or somebody else says, "Well, I just moved here, um, you know, from Hawaii or wherever you want to be. I've lived here two years, and this is my experience of government." Are those going to look alike? No. But this is where disagreements come from. It's simply background, the way you were raised, parents, grandparents, uh, and parts of the country that you live in, right? What, what school did you go to? And, and he makes it a point to say, it's not low IQ, right? It's just not. It's not low IQ, and it's not a lack of character. And although you reading the mail these days, you would think so. You know, that person over there in that party, they're dumb. That person over there, they don't have a moral compass. I mean, that's the sort of things that people are saying about each other. Both claiming to be Christians. Let me let me make it super clear. We don't take our cues from culture. We don't. We don't. We cannot take our cues from culture, because the culture's messed up. We know this. But you can have a clue. You can have a little sneak peek into our culture if you look at bumper stickers. That's kind of funny. I love looking at people's bumper stickers because I'm driving behind. I'm like, "Ooh, you're telling me a lot more than you think you're telling me about you." So I looked up some uh, Christian bumper stickers, and uh, this was the first one I came across. This fish won't fry, will you? (laughs) Does does that sound like Jesus to you? But people are out there, you know, trashing our faith as if God's out to get you. Now, this next one, I actually do think it it actually might be true. Honk if you love Jesus, text if you want to see him. Now, that that probably (laughs) is true. That That probably is true. Um, and then this next one, I don't even know what to do with this. What is that? Jesus on a dinosaur holding a flag with a machine gun. God bless America. What? What? And if you know or made that secret, I don't want to know about it. I mean, that's just that's a whole, mm right? So we don't take our cues from culture. Or you have Jesus riding a dinosaur. He can't do it. Who do we take our cues from? Christ, right? Isn't that what Christians? Y'all work with language, right? Christians follow Christ, little Christ. Right, not culture. And so, because we follow Christ, we follow the example of Christ, we follow the words of Christ, we don't ever demand our religious rights. You never see Jesus doing that. You never see him jumping up and down, saying, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I said this and you're doing that. Like, come on, you're not treating me fairly. You can't put me on a cross. I'm God's son. Which he could have said, but he didn't. And if he didn't, right? If he didn't, what do we do? We, well, we do what Jesus did. We serve. We serve others. Not just ourselves. We serve others because Jesus served others. The last night of his life, right? Washing feet, serving a meal, all throughout his life. In Matthew 20, um, there's an interesting story about who Jesus is, how he acts in his everyday life. in the hardest of situations, It's basically political season uh, where he is. Jericho is a really rough town. The the road between Jericho and Jerusalem is a really scary place. It would either get you killed or robbed, maimed. I mean, it was just bad. Everybody knew about the Jericho road. And so this is the story that's told about Jesus on this road. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Jesus. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, "'Lord, have mercy on us, son of David.'" Absolutely political, right? David was the king. This is a political term about the Savior coming into the world. Super political. King, son of David, also a king. The crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet. I guess so, because they're in a Roman province. But they shouted even more loudly, Have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Political, political, political. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, "What's What's Jesus say? Read with me. What do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus' question. What do you want me to do for you? Not just here, lots of places in the scriptures. And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus moved with compassion, not hatred, not strategy, compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So if the question that Jesus asks is how may I help you, our question is what? How may I help you? What do you want me to do for you? And that's the question we ask here on this corner. We say to the world, we say to Heartland, what do you need? And they said, we need a food pantry. So we created a food pantry. We say to Frontier, what, what do you need at Frontier Elementary? And they tell us, and we get that. And sometimes it's simply encouragement of the teachers. Because it's been a, have you heard it's been kind of a rough couple of years in public education? So we try to support where we can. And why do we do this? Because we're Jesus people. We're not culture people. We're Jesus people. And we do what Jesus says, period dot. That's it. Only him. No one else. Only what Jesus says. And we learn that, of course, not just by what I say, but what we understand together as church. And it helps, really, when when it's something the church has always said for hundreds and thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, right? Church and our ancestry. So here's the problem, though. There is this universal temptation, right? We are tempted to divide over orthodoxy rather than unite in orthopraxis. Now, like those are big seminary words. Yes, So here's here's the thing. Ortho, right? That's like orthodontist. Orthodontists do what? They put your teeth what? Straight. Right. Right? Orthodontist, make your teeth straight. Orthodoxy makes your belief straight. Ortho belief, right? The doxology. Some of you used to sing the doxology or still do, right? Right. Right belief. And people divide and divide and divide about that. There was one church, by the way, until 1054. That splits until 1517. Now there's 36,000 of us. Different denomination stripes names. So that's not working. But what we can do is unite in orthopraxis. Right practice. Did you know that you can help someone with someone else that doesn't believe exactly like you do? You can. That's what we're made for. Yet, it has become more difficult because last Wednesday this poll came out from uh, PBS NewsHour. That's pretty divided, I would say. Wouldn't you? Now, here's the thing. It's okay to vote differently. What's not okay is to demonize the other side and say that you have to vote my way or our country's going to fall apart. Right? Or, worse yet, you have to vote this way Or the church is going to fall apart. Well, friends, if your faith rests on an election in one country at one time, you've got no faith. Seriously. What we're part of, every nation, every tribe, all time, for all eternity, one election does not have much to do with our faith. Let's get really clear on this. We're about something much bigger, much stronger, much more important than any given election in any country at any time. That's not to say they're not important. But it's not that you can't ever say the church is resting on this one vote. No. Our, our church rests on Jesus. Amen? Amen? Him alone. So, John Wesley, our founder of Methodism, which he never meant for us to be a church, but here we are. Um, he really expected us to be a group within the Anglican Church, uh, Church of England. He says this, we, or said this, We should be rigorous in judging ourselves, right, each and every night before we go to bed. You know, Lord, where was I, where you wanted me to be? Where was I not? And help me do better tomorrow. And gracious in judging others. Giving them the shadow of, you know, the doubt. Like, what? Okay. Well, I'm sure they had something going on. You know what I find, though? You know why Wesley had to write this? Because normal people, right? Our normal temptation is to be rigorous in judging others and giving ourselves a pass. Because we understood we had a hard day. And then we judge somebody else for doing the same thing we did five minutes before. Haven't you ever been driving and been so mad at like this person that didn't use their blinker? Oh my gosh, particularly in the right lane. Come on, people, use your blinker. And then your spouse or your kids go, you, you're not using your blinker. You're like, ah, oh. that's how it is. That's our natural temptation. So here's the thing. It's not enough to have the right belief. It's just not. We also have to have the right action. And again, Gospel of Matthew says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, Right? political party, political party, they're religious political parties, but still, sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they teach you, follow it. But, read this part with me, do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Man, I'm glad they cleared that up years ago. Right? No. They tie up heavy burdens, politicians do, of any stripe in any country, hard to bear, lay them on the shoulders of others, not their own, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be what? Seen by others. They go to the soup kitchen, not for the day, but for three minutes while the cameras are rolling. Then they're on to their next soup kitchen or their other thing or this or that. that that's Jesus says, don't do that. And surely don't put my name on that because that's using my name in vain. Don't do that. So Jesus, to the religious folks, misusing his and his dad's name, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, things that matter to me and my dad, justice, mercy, it is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. In, in case you missed it the first time, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the plate and cup, but inside you're full of greed and self indulgence. You, you tell people that you're going to be for them, and then you actually do insider training because you get to know stuff for everybody else. And you're making millions while other people are suffering. You say, We don't have enough money to do it while you're lining your pockets because you know what's coming. You knew COVID was coming. You made millions and tens of millions of dollars when other people are suffering. And you say we don't have money to do it. You all do know this is happening, right? And it's legal. It's legal. They're not breaking a law. So here's the tough part God loves them. <laughs> I can believe that? God. God loves you in spite of your misinformed experience based evolving views. He does. God loved you when you didn't know anything. He loves you still. He loves the politicians. God loves who? The world, everybody. But it's also true that we all have a root of sinful self-interest. We just do. That's how we're made. Our founder, John Wesley, would say something like, hey, throw a lollipop in the circle of three-year-olds, see what happens. It's not going to go well, right? We're just naturally selfish. We have to have Christ come in us to override that inclination to do what's better. So um, Eugene Peterson in his incredible work, The Message, he translates Galatians 5 like this. He says, for there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Mm -hmm. Cutthroat competition, seen that? Divided homes, divided lives. Friends, I cannot tell you how many families are not talking this year because of what happened in 2020. They're letting ideology not only overcome their faith, but also their family. That ought not be. Cutthroat competition, divided lives, divided homes, small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of, read it with me, depersonalizing everyone into a rival. It doesn't have to be that way. And you think that's bad. You're like, wow, I'm glad I went to church. Here, here's, this is where this goes. Now, you may not know anything about this. I didn't until a few months ago. But there's been a terrible civil war going on in Ethiopia. Between Ethiopia, which is the larger nation, and the Tigray people, which is the region inside. It started November 3rd, I think, of 2020. The world had other things going on. They, they looked the other way. And more than a half a million people have been killed in two years. More than two million refugees, little women and children, just scattered because they disagree. This is where disagreement goes if it's not corrected. And you might say, well, okay, that's, you know, that's in another continent. In Oklahoma, like, you know, heaven's a local call, right? Well, not, not really. When it comes to the um, governor's race in particular, do you know we're divided as a state? Tulsa and Oklahoma City are here. Everybody else is over here. Just look it up. Right, so you've got an urban-rural divide, and we don't talk about that much, but it's always been there. You go to college; your rural people go here, your city people go there. That you know this deal, and, and there are there is real judgmental things going on, right? How oh, those city people—they don't have a moral compass. Oh, those rural people—they need to read a book. I mean, not good stuff, because we all know that that's not really true. If you know somebody who grew up in a place different than you did, right? Some of the most brilliant people I've known were very rural people from western Oklahoma, right? And some of the kindest, most gentle, magnanimous people I've ever met were right here in Edmond. And you just got to actually talk to people. You have to listen, right? So that's what James says. He says, you must be quick to listen. Listen, people. Listen, listen, listen. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness, and people say, well, what about righteous anger? And, and one of my mentors, Dallas Willard, he would say, here's the thing. If there is such a thing as righteous anger, I've never seen it. Because all anger thinks itself righteous at the time. Doesn't it? Sure it does. So the universal temptation, friends, is to believe and act as if we're better. And they, whoever they are, are less. This is not true. Matthew 18. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. This is Jesus talking, our king, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents, more money than you could ever repay in your lifetime, that's all you need to know about that, was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children possessions. Because slavery in that day was about poverty, not about ethnicity. Anybody could become a slave. All you had to do was have a, a a run of bad luck. And if you couldn't pay your debts, you were a slave. That's how it worked. And payments to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, read this with me. Have patience with me. And I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of, the, of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. Big debt. More than he could ever pay. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves. Who owed him 100 denarii. Less than a day's wage. Not a lot of money. Maybe 20 bucks. Right? And so you, you know what, the way this should go. But that's not what Jesus says happened. Jesus says, that guy who was forgiven more than he could ever pay, what did he do? He seized his fellow slave by the throat. And he yells at him, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him. Read it with me. Have patience with me. Sound familiar? The exact line that had been used with him. And I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed because it was wrong. It wasn't just. There was nothing right about it. You know what they did? They told on him. That's what they did. Jesus says they went and they reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? How many in this room have been forgiven something by God? Right, that'd be all of us, right? And and so you know what's supposed to happen next? God wants us to do for others what's been done for us. It's that simple. It's not about pedigree. It's not about resume. It's not about whether they deserve it. It's not about how much. It's not about if it's more or less than we've had to pay. Because God is the one who does it. Andy Stanley says it like this. The liberating gospel of Jesus has huge cultural implications. It's supposed to change the way we live, but they don't get voted in. No, nope, they don't. You can't. By the way, you cannot legislate morality. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We can try it, but it doesn't work. Because you can't vote it in. They get raised up and lived out by the people who are followers of Jesus. That's how stuff gets done. We have to do it. Not just think about it and not just vote about it. Right? So Paul actually lays out a vision for this equality, this radical New concept that Rome had no idea what to do with. And that is that all of us are children of God. All. All. Every race, every country, every time. And so in Galatians it says this, But now faith has come. We are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus you are, read it with me, all children of God through faith. There's no longer Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. Well, that's going to take them more than 20 years to get at. There's no longer slave or free. And you can almost hear people like, sure there are. We see it every day. There's people who own people, and there are people who are owned by people. And, and by the way, in that day, they thought, well, because that's how God wanted it. It's how God made it. And that was used around here for a long time in our country. And by the way, there's no longer male or female. You believe that? And you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what heaven looks like. So N.T. Wright says it like this. When Christ came, there was this whole new world order right? There's no longer Jew or Gentile. And so N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, for Paul, it is a matter of belonging to a particular community, a baptized community, the new royal family, the Messiah's people, Jesus' people that we've been talking about. And this family's entered in through baptism. Paul knew that some people were slaves and others free. He knew that. But the point is, the point is that all of these are irrelevant for your status in the family. doesn't matter. The family of Messiah There aren't two families, not two circles, one. One more privileged than the other. No, there's only one. One circle, one family, one church. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Right? In Acts 15, we actually see this. The church has fought for more than 20 years now, from Jesus' resurrection until the council of Jerusalem. And and 20 years after the resurrection, the gap between Jew and Gentile, it remains so huge culturally, politically, morally. The the, the really hard part was Jews were like, we're not going to deal with those immoral people. We can't let them in the church and have the church survive. It just won't happen. But the church had to decide what to do. And so in Acts 15, the scripture says this, after there had been much debate, (laughs) yep, absolutely, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles, not Jews, would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, right? We don't, God does. Testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. No difference. God's in both places. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made, say with me, no distinction. No distinction between them and us. So, yes, there's no longer slave or free in Jesus' people. Now, does this work perfectly? No, of course not. It took our country another 1,800 plus years before we got that right with the 13th Amendment. We continued that argument for more than 1,000 years, almost 2,000 years, right? The culturally disruptive unity of the first century church shocked the world. And they refused to allow their built-in differences, which there were many, to divide them. Because you don't have to. Yes, there is no longer male or female, right? That was a radical message of dignity. In, in Jesus' day, women did not have a lot of rights, particularly Jewish women. I'm told that the Roman women had some Right? And so the women flocked to the church. Still true today. Every church I've ever been a part of, there were more women than men. Every time. And part of it is because church is the one place where it's supposed to be equal. So says Galatians. Right? So Paul says all of us, every church, all of you are one in Christ Jesus. All of us. For real. So if you're baptized, think of this. If you're baptized, you are connected to and have the same dignity as everyone who has been baptized. That ought to blow your mind. You have the same dignity as Peter or Paul or Joseph or Mother Teresa. Right? Now, I'm not going around like, me and Mother Teresa are equal. No. But, but, but I mean, we ought, that ought to give us pause. Right? That, that the equality of God is because of God, and it's so much that way that we are now equal. Not because of us, but because of him. So here's our way forward. When we choose to carry another's burdens, and it's not forced on us. It's something we choose. What divides us diminishes. It really does. So in 2011, some of you remember, there was a tornado in Cashin, And it took one of our members' houses, just took it straight off the slab. And so we began to clean up. And, and clean up and clean up and clean up until all of that was gone. And you know, they asked us a lot of things like, well, thanks for help, or how, how did you know about it, or how, how can you do this, or what? because we took up an offering and we made sure that they were okay until their insurance got there, and we helped them rebuild, and they, and they rebuilt. You know what they didn't ask us? What political party are you from? Uh, later in Newcastle in 2013, uh, there was a group of us um, that went down there. Um, I was told about it by a Democrat who worked with a Republican to get us there. Stop the presses, right? Jennifer Wallace was there doing the, and doing the cleanup with her son who's now at OU. Um, you know, that's how it is. And then a few weeks later, we went over to Nuala, because it was a very busy tornado season. Right? There's Nicole morning sitting right back there. Um, I love the hat. I'm working hard. And um, of course the first lady of Acts Two, Chantel, right here on the front row, she loves the tractor. She knows the deal. She's, she's doing that. And then, um, Carolyn, you're going to see yourself here. I mean, people who are still part of our church today, Tim Haddock and Carolyn Smith, Kathy Wallace, Adam and Nicole Morning. We're, we're working at New Walla. Why? Because we're Jesus people. Not because we're Democrats or Republicans. In that photo, there are Democrats and Republicans and independents. Right? When we go to the food bank, you know what they ask us? Not whether you're Republican or Democrat. They don't ask party. When, when Brandon and I went to Tijuana... And, and help save young men and women from sex trafficking and drug trafficking. You know, and, and everything in this little casa, um, their entire belongings fit in one bag. And those kids, you think they asked us what political party we're from? No. They're just glad to be alive. So, so friends, you, you see this. The church says, bear one another's burdens. Period, dot. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. You're doing what Jesus wants you to do when you do that. Carrying one another's burdens requires us to move forwards and toward one another because you can't know somebody's burden if you don't know them. To say, how can I help you, requires you to be close enough to listen to the response. And you actually get to know them. You get to know one another. And when you get to know one another, you actually fear less and understand more, which division never allows. right? You fear less and understand more when we carry one another's burdens. It's an extra blessing on top of it. So here's the bottom line, friends. We can disagree politically and love unconditionally. Do you know that? You can. It's po- actually, that's what we're called to do. Because Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I know this will shock you, but you don't have to agree with me to love me. And I'll have to agree with you to love you. Because here's a here's shocker. I don't agree with all of you. There's like 800 of you. There's, it's not possible, right? And I will say, it, grieve, it has grieved me deeply that a number of years ago, I had a few families leave because they didn't disagree. They didn't agree with me about one particular issue. We agreed on like 8,069 others, but they left because they didn't agree with me. You don't have to agree with me to love me. I don't have to agree with you to love you. Do you agree with everything your two year old tells you? I <laughs> hope not, right? We are called to lovingly lead the way, even when it costs us along the way. And it will cost us. It does. It will. But it doesn't change what we're called to. We're called to love. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Right? Not when it's convenient. Not when it's understood. So that others may see your good works and go, wow, that's different. That's different. And if we are Jesus followers, we are required to love one another when we disagree. Because when we love each other, when we agree, so what? I mean, that's not hard, Jesus says. What Jesus does say is this. Here's your new commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you, what's that word? Must love one another. Yep, that's right. It's not an add-on. It's not if you want to. It's not if you feel like it. This is our call. Because when we serve others, we create a more perfect union. Amen? Amen, we do. So here's here's our action step. Follow John Wesley's three rules from voting from 1774. We went over these last week. If you weren't here last week or you need a refresher, here they are. One, vote without fear reward. We got that. To the person judged most worthy, which may or may not be in your party, by the way. To speak no evil of the person they voted against. Not before, not during, not after. And thirdly, take care that your spirit is not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. When you get to Thanksgiving and somebody says, Did you know they voted that way? Keep it together. Keep it together. I'll say it this way. Always, friends, always choose people over party. People over party. The, the child of God in front of you, choose them. To serve them, to listen to them, to bless them. Andy Stanley has a way with words. He puts it more eloquently. A you is always more important than a political view. And then finally, and I hope this is true all year round, not just during election times. Commit to never demeaning or undermining someone's dignity just don't do it it's not who we are we, Jesus doesn't have any just doesn't put up with that so this is not we cannot do this you never saw Jesus do that right? we're not, we're not going to do that so as you go I do hope you'll vote I hope you will love everybody in line you'll hold the door for somebody in line bless them smile and be great citizens this week amen, amen. alright let's pray together